Good to be back with you guys. Man, it has been a marathon this week. We've been doing a lot of, I've been doing a lot of talking. It's more talking than I ever do. Um, but man, I love being in Alabama. You, you guys are so, man, Alabamans are so nice. But they're also, they got a little bit of grit. Have you noticed that? They're kind of tough too, like you don't mess with them, right? I heard a story about a guy from Alabama that he was flying in a plane with a guy from France and a guy from England, and their, their plane crashed in the middle of a tribe of headhunters in the Amazon. And uh, the chief came out, and he said, hey, guys, I'm really sorry, but we have a rule that anybody that comes into the village unannounced, we have to kill them, and then we strip, strip down their skin, and we use it for our canoes. You know, everybody's horrified by this, and they said, but we'll let you choose how you're going to die. So the uh, British guy, they said to him first, you know, how do you want to die before we use your skin for a canoe? And he's just horrified. He's like, well, give me a pistol. I want to die by the pistol. So he says, long live the king. You know, kills himself. And they start stripping him down and making a canoe. And the guy from Alabama is just horrified by this. He's like, this is disgusting. And the French person, they say, you know, how do you want to die? And the French person says, I need a salt. Give me a salt. So he takes himself. He's like, vive la France. He kills himself. And they start stripping him down and make a canoe out of him. Well, the guy from Alabama, they ask him. And he goes, I need a fork. Like a fork? They track down a fork and they give it to him. And he goes, you ain't going to make a canoe out of me. <laughs> you Alabamans, man, y'all are tough, right? <laughs> hey, so we're on the last section of this uh, workbook that was just, it's amazing. This workbook, I'm so amazed at how well it was put together. So, um, Great job on this, you guys. This was an in-house thing y'all did here. We're going to be on the sac- uh, part 7, 8, and 9 tonight. So I don't know if you guys got a chance to work through some of this. Um, if you didn't, no worries. Tonight we'll wrap it all up, and maybe you can go through and spend the week working through one of these a day. And just looking back, or maybe you want to take a, a little bit of time to reflect back on it, because um, I, I just really believe that, you know, the, the basic premise of this whole s- series, this conference we've been doing, is that God is always at work in your life. But most of the time, you can't see it or understand it. So life is lived forward, but we only understand it looking backward. But we can be confident of this, that we know God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we say that, but when you're in the throes of a challenge, when you're in the throes of a struggle, you're going, there's no way anything good could come of this. But the crazy thing is, you just don't know how good something could turn out to be. In fact, there's a, there's a verse where Paul says this. He says, don't judge anything before the time. Because when the day happens, the day that Jesus comes, everything will be made clear. And I just believe that when we see the Lord face to face, there are going to be so many things that we're going to go, that was why it went down that way. Because I believe that in the end, God is, he's, he's writing a, 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 sim, a symphony, right? And there's so many parts to it. And maybe sometimes the note sounds a little discordant. It sounds like out of, out of tune or something, but it's part of what he's working on, right? This grand masterpiece. And in the end, I just believe we're going to go, well, it says in the, it actually says how it's going to go in the end. It says in Revelation, at the end, we're all going to drop to our knees and go, True and just were your judgments. I've heard a lot of people say, when I get up to heaven, I'm going to ask God a few questions. By all indications, when we get up to heaven, what we're going to be doing is going, oh, you're good. (laughs) Good. True and just are your judgments. 
But it's hard sometimes to wait until the end, right? So what, I, what I, my goal has been with this book has been to kind of show the pattern of God's work in our life. And I, I'm convinced, if you weren't here Sunday, we talked about how God's work in our life is like a circle where you keep coming back to these certain themes over and over again. And you're like, we're doing this again? But every time you do it, you're, you're different, right? And God looks a little bit different than you thought he was. You're like, oh, I kind of had a wrong view of God there. And, and, and every time we come back, maybe it's at certain time frames or locations, but every time we come back around, God is expanding our capacity to love him. And then through that, he's expanding our capacity to love others. So last Sunday night, we wrapped up with what we would call, we call the, dark, the dark cave or the dark night of the soul. This is the moment in your journey where you have to face off with some stuff you'd rather ignore. Uh, Joseph Campbell said this. He said, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. It's oftentimes the, the life God wants for us is just on the other side of us facing the thing we're afraid of the most. We go into the dark cave, kind of empty-handed and alone, and we have to face off with some stuff we don't want to face off with, and it's a battle. Sometimes it's even a battle with our will versus God's will. And, and eventually, we emerge from the cave, and the way you win the victory, by the way, is by surrendering. That's just the, the bottom line in the Christian walk. If you want to win the victory, you've just got to surrender. And that is the, the journey of life. A.W. Tozer says this, the essence of surrender is getting out of God's way. So he can do through you what he wants to do in you. You just got to get out of God's way sometimes. And we get in our own way sometimes. Our fear gets in the way. Our determination that it has to be a certain way gets in the way. And God has to sometimes take us through that dark night so that we let go of our own need to control and dominate everything. And him say, let me work through you because I got a better plan for you than you could ever come up with on your own. But oftentimes in the middle of it, it doesn't feel like a better plan. It just feels like pain and discomfort. So we're going to pick up with this on number seven. It's the resolution. And uh, the resolution is the moment where the battle kind of comes to a, 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 a moment of peace. Now, the crazy thing about the resolution is nothing may have actually changed externally. Like maybe the disease hasn't gone away. But you've recognized the fact that whether the disease is there or not, whether the disease stays or whether God heals you, you're going to follow him through this and you resign yourself to his plan. And there comes a point where, man, you face off, sometimes it's an external battle, but more often than not, it's an internal battle where you say, okay, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That was the resolution moment if you think about it for Jesus. He, he came to a point where he said, man, if there was another way, Lord, for this to go down, like the salvation of the world, I would love that. But you know what? Not my will, but your will be done. And we come to a moment of resolution and when we surrender our will to his will, it changes everything. And again, the external circumstances may not have changed. The divorce still may have gone through, right? Uh, the, the disease may still be there riddling your body. But we've recognized that, you know what, I'm going to surrender and I'm just going to move forward trusting God. And, and, and there comes a point where there, brings, there comes peace when we surrender. But what I've seen oftentimes is in that time of resolution, there's this moment of grace we are so anxious to move forward because we've just fought this hard battle. Maybe we feel like we've had some waste, a wasted season of our life that we just surge forward. And we don't ever take time to reflect back on what you've just been through. I see this oftentimes with people in their marriages. Um, you know, they get divorced and then they jump right into another marriage and they say things like, well, it's all a matter. It was just, 
the marriage was over a long time ago is just a matter of paperwork now. You're like, well, no, it's a little more complicated than that. You might need some time for your soul to heal. Oftentimes in this resolution phase, you really need to work through some forgiveness. Um, I had a situation a few years ago where I just got really burned by a pastor. And man, it was like seven months. I was so hurt. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to read my Bible. I didn't want to pray. I was just hurt. And you're just like, ugh. And you start getting, it's easy to get cynical during that time. And so I started going to counseling and I walked through healing, but I just felt like I couldn't get over the hump. And, uh, the, you know, the challenge with forgiveness, and I talk extensively about this in, in Fully You, but forgiveness is like a spiral because forgiveness involves grieving. And grief is always like a spiral. So what happens in grief is you, you, you'll wake up a week, two weeks, a year later after the event has happened, and, and you'll just get washed over with this flood of emotion. Maybe it's like, I can't believe they got away with doing that. Like, I can't believe he did that to mom, or I can't believe they did that to me. And what happens in grief is, is you, you choose to forgive, right? You, forgiveness is a one-time decision, right? You don't wait around for emotions to feel right. If you're waiting around for the right emotions to forgive, you'll probably never forgive because what happened to you wasn't fair, right? But forgiveness is a decision where you say, I am going to choose to forgive. And, but what will happen is the grief will come back around. And when it comes back around, you have to remind yourself of your decision. And you have to say, no, I, I chose to forgive, and eventually, little by little, the spiral, there's another spiral again, will get wider and wider. And as it comes around and you remember five, six years later what happened, all you'll remember is just, it, you'll remember it with a feeling of peace. And listen, it, as Christians, sometimes we say, well, just forgive and forget. That's not possible. Your brain won't let you forget. As Christians, we don't forgive and forget. We forgive and choose to remember with forgiveness. If you're waiting around to forgive and forget to feel like you've actually done it, you're going to feel condemnation, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. As Christians, we forgive, and we choose to remember when that spiral comes back around, we go, I choose to forgive. And oftentimes in that resolution, God will give us a little bit of a break from the challenges. Oftentimes, it's simply because we've just stopped fighting, and we've just said, I surrender to your will, Lord. And in those moments, I would encourage you to, to walk through, is there anyone I need to forgive? Is there something in my heart that could really easily taint me? You know, King Solomon, he says this, he says, above all else, guard your heart. For from it flow, flow the issues of life. Man, it's like a spring. If that spring gets tainted with bad, something bad, you can't go drink in the water. So you've got to keep that, your heart pure. And oftentimes in the time of resolution, it's a time where we've got to work through some of the pain of what we just went through. And maybe you may be a little bit mad at God that he allowed you to go through it. We talked about that in the dark night of the soul. Sometimes you get a little mad at God and you're like, God, why didn't you, why didn't you heal her? Why didn't you set me free from this? Why didn't you break, you know, fix that? And sometimes we have to wrestle with God a little bit, but then this resolution comes, and there usually comes a point where he gives us a moment, and he gives us a chance to let it go. It happened for me after that pastor burned me. I was seven months of just kind of wandering around and, you know, trying to scrounge up money to pay for, to be with a family, and I was on a plane, and I was on a plane, and I just remember, I hear this voice in my head, and I, I think it was God, and he said to me, you ready to get over it now? And I was like, I guess I am. And in that moment, I let it go. And everything changed from that moment. But it was a moment of resolution that I had to come to where I had to, to really just slow down and process what had happened to me rather than jumping into the next season. And that's what happens a lot of times is God will give us this window of grace, but we're so anxious to make up for lost time that we never slow down and evaluate what happened to us. And Andy Stanley says something that I think is brilliant. He says, experience isn't the best teacher. Evaluated experience is the best teacher. 
You know, so much of what we do is habit-based. In fact, Charles Duhigg, he wrote this book called The Power of Habit, and he says like up to 80% of what we do is just rote habit. Our brain can't constantly be thinking. So he says a lot of what we do, we're prone to make the same mistakes over and over again because a lot of the way we respond to things is purely based out of habit. So if you haven't taken time to process what happened to you, you can completely miss what God was trying to show you in that season as you're trying to run ahead and get into a new season or jump into a new relationship or jump into a new, you know, sometimes we do have to scramble. Like I had to, I had to keep working to pay for the bills and stuff. But there's this, you have to give yourself some emotional space, some relational space and time where it's just you and God and say, God, what is it you wanted to teach me through this so that you can get the most out of it? And there's a very good chance that as he teaches you those things, you're going to gain a new perspective on God. You're going to gain a new perspective on yourself. And, and I think that new perspective, could you pop that chart up, uh, the, the circle chart that's got the stages of the life of faith? My friend Janet Hagerberg, she wrote a book called The Critical Journey, and she talks about how in our journey of faith, there's, there's these six stages. Uh, the, the, the circle with the, it's the black slide with the white circle. There it is, yeah. She says in the journey of faith, there's six stages. And she says we all start off with a recognition of God. This is the moment where you realize, wow, God, has a, God made me, he loves me, he has a plan for my life. We all were there at one point where we had this epiphany moment and we realized, man, God has a plan for me. And maybe if you grew up in the church, it happened early on. Maybe some of you are just coming to that realization. And the challenge in this stage, the, the struggle in this stage, the change of perspective we have to have is we feel unworthy. We go, well, how could God love me and forgive my sins? I'm, I'm not worthy of this. And in this stage, the battle is realizing it's not because of you that you've been saved. It's by God's grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast. It's this beginning of recognition of, yeah, you don't deserve the grace, but God loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish. And then you recognize if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's this realization that, yeah, it's not because of anything I have or haven't done that I've been accepted. It's because of what God has done through Jesus Christ that I've been accepted. And that's the first perspective shift. You start there. And then you, you come into what's called a life of discipleship. Now understand something. I believe all of this is discipleship. I believe every stage of this is discipleship. So don't get too hung up on that word life of discipleship. But life of discipleship is where you really start to dig in and, and, and it, where Paul talks about don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the season where you start to dive in and you start to understand that God, everything he asks of us has a purpose. There's a reason for everything he asks and commands of us, and it's for our own good. It's for our own benefit. So you, get, you begin to shift yourself out of the world's way of thinking and into God's way of thinking. You learn his principles. You learn the way he, he, uh, that he wants us to live. And in the challenge in this stage is, is you know, we, we sometimes get a little dogmatic and we go, man, you latch, typically you latch on to one pastor and you say, my pastor, he's preaching the truth. But that preacher across town, pure heresy. It's just pure heresy, everything he's teaching. And you think there's just this one way. Well, then there comes a moment where you shift out of life of discipleship, ideally. Now listen, I've seen some people that get stuck in that stage. And, and honestly, I call them theologically obese. <laughs> They've got so much Bible in them, and they can quote chapter and verse, but they're never doing anything to reach the world with that truth. And you can sit around and know all the Bible you know, but until you put that into play, you're not 
tapping into the power of what the gospel is calling us to do. It says there, we are now Christ's ambassadors saying, be reconciled to God. And I see a lot of people that get stuck in this phase because they love the knowledge, but the knowledge is meant to drive us to love. So the next stage is what's called the productive life. That's where you start to go, man, I feel like I've got something in me that God wants me to do. And you start, you start running forward and trying to do something for God. And, and listen, that discipleship fate is super important. I think one of the challenges we have in our world today, that a lot of the Christians, you, you heard a lot of this deconstruction movement where everybody's like, I'm deconstructing my faith. And they end up walking away from the faith when they're deconstructing it. I think it's because they skipped from the recognition phase straight to the productive life. And that's why there are these do-gooders out there crusading for social justice, but they have no framework for how to actually properly carry out social justice because they haven't learned the word. And I think that's one of the challenges we have in our world today is a lot of people jump past that life of discipleship phase where they're understanding why God put things in place and they just go out and want to change the world, but they have no framework for how to do it, how to build on the truths in the gospel, and they become dangerous. We can't jump, we can't skip this phase. After the productive life, there comes a moment where you've been serving the Lord and you go, man, I'm serving in church, I know my Bible, why do I still struggle with my anger? Why do I still struggle with you know, the addiction, the pornography, whatever it is. And you just, you start looking a little bit inward and go, man, there's still some parts of me that I just don't, I don't know what to do with. And this is the part where we go in to kind of addressing some of our soul issues. And when I say soul issues, uh, you know, the Greek word suke um, is, is where we get our word psychology. And the, the apostle Paul, he says this in, in, in Thessalonians, he says, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than ever any two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit. And what he's talking about there is the fact that your spirit and your soul are two separate entities. And your soul is made up of your emotions, your thoughts, and your desires. And they're so connected sometimes that you can often think that in your spirit, God is saying something, but really it's just your emotions. So the word of God is what divides between soul and spirit, where you see this is actually the truth. I'm feeling this deep within my emotions, but it's not the truth. The truth is what the word of God says, and it separates out what the spirit of God is saying within us. And there's this moment where we have to start to recognize there are some, this is kind of where I hang out in this journey inward. I help people figure out what's the soul care I need? What's the hurts that have happened to me in the past that I need to overcome? Because they're limiting me in where I'm going. And that's where I, a lot of people get, get stuck in this phase and because they don't want to deal with the past issues. But God wants to heal us totally. And, and one of the things my pastor says this, he says, whenever God reveals, it's always to heal. So if there's something that's been revealed in your life, a sin, something that's come out, uh, and you're like, I'm ashamed of it, I want to hide it. If it's been revealed, you can be guaranteed God has revealed it because he wants to heal you of it. And that's what happens in the journey inward. And then we come to what's called the wall. And the wall is no fun. The wall is the moment where you start to, 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 God maybe gets really silent. You start to kind of question like, God, have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten me? And we talked about this in the dark, the dark night of the soul section, but it's that moment where kind of you're going through a test. And when you're taking a test in school, the teacher doesn't just feed you the answers. The teacher sits quietly in the corner and trusts that you've internalized what you've learned. And the wall can feel like that. And the wall looks different for every person. A lot of people in the wall, they, they feel like maybe they've even lost their faith. I was talking to a couple the other day, and she's just recently come to the Lord. She's in the life of discipleship. She's super excited about everything going on. But the guy she married, he's been in the faith his whole life. And he's going through the wall right now. And she called me. She's like, I think my husband's losing his faith. But I know her husband, and I've been talking to him. And I'm like, no, he's not losing his faith. 
He's just at the wall right now where he's starting to get a whole new perspective on God. And it, what looks to you like he's walking away, it's kind of like that where Peter, you know, that, that verse uh, where it says that Jesus started saying, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody kind of freaks out thinking he's talking about cannibalism. And then they start walking away and Jesus turns to Peter and he's like, you leaving too? And Peter's like, uh, I don't know where else to go. I'm in too deep. Like, you got the words of life. I'm not going anywhere. And, I, and, and at the wall, we get to that place where we're like, I'm in too deep here, but I don't even know if, like, where I stand on this. And, and sometimes we want to jump back to an earlier stage, but the thing about these stages is you can't go back. You can only go forward. So unfortunately, sometimes people throw everything out, but more often than not, if you can push through the wall and wrestle with God, kind of that wrestle with God Jacob moment, you emerge from it. And you come to what's called the journey outward, and you all of a sudden realize that what you thought God was there for isn't what he's there for. <laughs> and you go, oh my goodness. Maybe you realize that you had made God in your own image. And the God you had been worshiping was a God that you had made in your own image, and he doesn't operate by your rules. And you start to embrace the mystery of who he is. And when you start to embrace the mystery of it, you start to realize this journey that you're on really isn't even about you. It's about what God wants to do through you. And you kind of give up on your illusions. You give up on trying to manipulate God and make deals with him. Hey, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. And you start to go, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I don't know what you're doing here, but I'm going to walk forward trusting that you are working all things together for good. And that's when you come to the life of love. And that's where Paul says, man, the only thing that matters is, is, is love. Love is the greatest of these. And, and love, love is very patient with people on each phase of this journey. Because here's what happens a lot of times. As you're growing in faith and you get a new perspective, it's very easy to look back on people that are in the earlier stages of the faith and get frustrated with them. Because the curse of knowledge is you forget what it's like to not know. And once you know, you're like, well, of course I know that. But you forget what it's like to not know it. So we look at people that are in an earlier stage of faith and we go, oh my gosh, that's such shallow Christianity. We're like, well, it's not shallow to them. They're just figuring out God loves them. And sometimes we get kind of judgmental and harsh. And there's this verse where, where Paul talks about what real love and maturity looks like. He says this, it's, it gets kind of lost in something weird, he says. He says this, now about food sacrificed to idols. Can you pop that next ver verse up? You're like, wait, what's it what does this have to do with love? What does this have to do with maturity? Here's what he's saying. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. I love the King James Version. It says, knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. And you're like, what in the world is he talking about? At the time that the Apostle Paul lived, a lot, there were a lot of pagan idols, and they would sacrifice animals to those pagan idols. And then they would sell that, that meat for food. Well, a lot of Christians refused to eat that meat because they knew it had been sacrificed to idols and they saw it as tainted. Now, Paul says, guys, an idol isn't a real God. Eat the meat. It's fine. But if you're with somebody who won't eat the meat because they haven't grown in their maturity and understanding of God, that all things are permissible, but not everything is profitable, right? He says, don't eat the meat around them because love a, like, love loves people whatever stage of the journey they're on. And true maturity is willing to embrace those who are on an earlier stage of the journey and not belittle them, but walk with them on the journey. And it also 
it doesn't look back at your own previous stages and despise where you came from because you needed that, those steps on the journey where God brought you from. Sometimes we look back at ourselves and early on and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so ashamed of who I was. And you don't need to be ashamed of those uh, misunderstandings about God. It was part of the growth phase to get you to where he brought you to today. And so Paul is saying true maturity, it looks like this. You transcend a stage, you go to the next stage, but you don't despise the previous stages and you don't despise those in previous stages. And oftentimes you talk to people and they're like, oh, I'm so enlightened now. I heard a guy, a guy told me the other day, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm enlightened now. I don't need to go to church. And I was like, how's that working out for you, right? Run from anyone who tells you they're enlightened or wise or mature because they're probably not right? Those who are truly mature know, hey, we're all in a, just a different stage of the journey, and you have a lot of patience and compassion for those who are coming behind you. And, and this, I think, I think that circle, can you jump back to that circle? I think that circle de- defines a lot of the division we have in the body of Christ. I think a lot of times, those of us who've been in the faith a long time, we look at people in the recognition of God's stage, and we look at a church that's maybe really evangelistic, and we go, oh, they're watering down the gospel, But maybe that's what people in that stage, that's the amount of truth they can handle. Because remember, we talked about on Sunday the fact that truth has to reveal itself little by little to us. The whole truth would crush us. If God showed the whole truth to us all at once, it would crush us. So he sends the Holy Spirit to guide us in all truth, little by little. And he shows the truth to us, and we open our eyes, and we're like, oh. And a lot of times we look at some churches and they go, oh, they're so somber and morose. There's no joy in that church. All they're ever talking about is suffering. And, and, and maybe those are the churches that are ministering to people in the wall, right? And you look at some preachers and they're like, all the journey in, we're like, all they talk about is psychology, right? I think a lot of the division we have in the church is we're judging different members of the body for a specific role they have in helping people in the journey of discipleship. And maybe we just need to chill out a little bit because truly mature people go, ah, I can take that. I can, I can trust that God's going to lead them where they need to go. Now, if somebody gets stuck in a phase, we can be part of maybe helping them through that. Because we do tend to want to go back sometimes to earlier phases or we get stuck in a phase. But the, the goal is to constantly be moving forward in love and getting a new perspective on God and who he is. And I'm convinced of this. The circle keeps repeating. Just when you think you understand God and what real love is, he pushes you to a new stage and you have to recognize who God is at a new level all over again. And you go whoa, God is way bigger than I thought he was. I thought I had a corner on him. I finally thought I had him in my box. And he's like, nope, I'm way bigger than your box. And we start the cycle all over again, constantly growing in our love and our understanding of who God is. And then we get to the good part. The final stage, as we gain the new perspective, is we get a message to share of God's work in our life. There's a verse in Revelation. I love this verse. It says this. It says, they triumphed over him. They were talking about that the saints were in a battle against the enemy. And it says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What this is saying here is the power of the gospel is the blood of the lamb. It came, he came and redeemed us. He forgived, forgave us. He took away our sin, paid the price for it. But now we're called to not just sit around on our blessed assurance, as they say, but the, the power comes when we tell the world the story of God's work in our life. And sometimes it can be scary to tell the story of where you came from. 
it can be really scary. You're like, well, I don't want to tell people about that. In fact, I was doing a coaching session a few years ago with a couple. They had come to me because they wanted me to help them launch marriage conferences. And it was like an hour and a half meeting. And I kept asking them, so why are you so passionate about marriage? And they were like, oh, I'm passionate about marriage because God loves marriage. I'm like, I agree. But why are you so passionate about marriage? Well, we just think marriages are in trouble. And I'm like, okay, but why are you so passionate about marriage? Finally, the, the meeting's about to end. And I said, what are you not telling me? And they looked at each other. They're like, should we tell him? I'm like, you guys are paying a lot of money for this meeting, right? I'm not doing this for free. <laughs> and the one girl goes, we both cheated on each other early in our marriage, but God restored our marriage. And we want to help people who have had broken marriages through infidelity. And I was like, there it is. That's the story you're going to tell people, and they're going to be so encouraged when they're going through their own battle. And they said, oh, no, we can't tell anybody about that. That's shameful. I was like, it was shameful, but God redeemed it, and that's where the power is going to come from. And I was like, you can use other people's material. You can teach Jimmy Evans. You can teach Emerson Egerix, whatever it is. But I said, the real power is going to come when you tell people, hey, we've lived this. God restored our marriage, and he can do the exact same thing for yours. That's when power comes. It's the blood of the lamb, the redeeming of their marriage, and the word of their testimony. And they had to get, they kept going, we don't want to go back there. And I said, it's not a matter of going back there. It's a matter of recognizing that God has done something, and now we have to express that, that struggle, that challenge, that difficult time we went, to, went through. Your survival story can become the survival guide for other people who are going through a similar challenge. And the craziest thing is God will often bring people into your life who need the very thing you've gone through. And if you're willing to tell the story of God's work in your life, not because it's about you, but it's because about God's love flowing through you to those around you, then there's power with that. And you find a sense of deep meaning and purpose. Viktor Frankl said, in some way, suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it finds its meaning. As soon as you start to realize, wow, that was a horrible season, but I'm going to be able to help these people now. I'm going to be able to share my story with these people and show them God can get you through this. There's this weird thing Paul says. It's a, it's a bizarre verse. He says this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Can you pop that verse up there, the next one? He says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. You know, Paul, man, he frustrates me. I wish he would speak more clearly sometimes. I'm like, what are you talking about, Paul? This is one of those verses that for years baffled me. I was like, what is he talking about? Because it seems like he's saying Christ didn't get the job done. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying Christ got the job done, and now my job is to show the world the example of that suffering well that Christ came, and through us, he's redeeming our story. And my job is now to project that to the world around us as we suffer well, as we say, man, I don't know why God's putting us through this, but I have confidence there's a reason for everything that going, we're going through. That's what filling up what's lacking in Christ. It's not that his work wasn't complete. It's that your job now is for the word of your testimony to be the power that is projected to the, out to the world around you. And that is where you get your message. So I tell people all the time, I say, you know, you've been wanting to write a book. Well, here's the best thing you can write about is the story of God's work in your life. And they say, well, how do I write a book? And I say this, if you were sitting across from one person who's going through the very same struggles you went through, and usually, let me tell you this, this is what I've found over and over again. The worst season of your life, that season you don't want to revisit, that's usually where you need to go because that's usually where the power is. The part you don't want to go back and talk about, the part you don't want to revisit, you just want to move on, 
that's usually where the power is that God wants to do the greatest work. I told the story about Mexico. Man, I did not want to revisit Mexico. I was just angry and afraid that whole time. But as I went back and unpacked it while I was writing this book, I started to see, oh, God was preparing me. One of the things he prepared me with, a simple thing he prepared me with, is I learned how to fix stuff down in Mexico. Everything was breaking and rotting all the time. And up to that point, I didn't know how to fix anything. And recently, God called me to build a retreat center out in the hills of Texas by hand. (laughs) And I've been doing it. And I would not have dared to take on that project had I not learned in Mexico how to fix and build stuff. Little stuff like that. I was struggling with anger and fear. And I ended up writing a book about anger and fear. I was even trying to write a book about perspective in Mexico when I had none. And now I've written a book about perspective. And I look back at that season in Mexico that in my mind at that time was the worst possible waste of time. I was like, what a horrible, stupid, dumb waste of time year. God, what were you thinking? And the worst part was, I'm looking back now, I'm like, I had a bunch of energy then. I don't have any energy now. (laughs) God, why are you choosing to use like stuff now when I, I, why couldn't you have used me when I had energy? And he's like, well, I was using you, but I had to train you on some stuff. And oftentimes it's the season you don't want to revisit, the thing you don't want to talk about that's right where you need to go to find the story that God has been building in your life. And if you're sitting across from a person and they're going through something you've been through, maybe it was the cancer, maybe it was the marriage struggle, here's what I encourage people to do. Think about this beforehand. What are the top three things or maybe five things, you would say to somebody, this is in the, in the chapter here on chapter nine, that you would say to something, what are the top three lessons you would say to somebody, here's what you're gonna need to get through this. And there's your first three chapters of your book. Here's what I would, and that's, that's how you write a book. That's the topic of your book. And you say, what, is, what are the three things, the five things, the seven things that you learned through that experience? So my encouragement for you guys, I put Two of these circles in the back. And I want to encourage you to go back through the, most two, the two most recent seasons of your life. If you did not hear the first, uh, first session of this, I think, did y'all record that, Pastor Robert? Yep. You can go back and watch that. It'll be on the website, I guess. And, um, and you'll see kind of the, the lead up to this. But I want to encourage you, figure out what was the turning point? Like, what's the most recent turning point? I do this when I'm coaching people trying to find their message because a lot of times people are like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. And I say, look, God's already prepared you for what's next. You just need to figure out, like, what's the message, the theme? And, and I say, name the season. Give the season a name. So like my season in Mexico, I called it a really bad year at the beach. That's what I called the season. And then what was the message I learned from that? And the message I learned is you got to keep your perspective lifted in the battle or you'll lose hope. That was the thing. And that's one of the things I talk about now all the time. And then go back, what was the turning point right before that? And start working your way backwards. And as you do it, you'll find that God's been slowly layering a message into your life. There's a guy named Galenson, uh, David Galenson. He wrote a book called Young Masters, Young Geniuses and Old Masters. And he started studying the life of famous artists and musicians. And he wanted to figure out at what age they produced their greatest work. So he started researching all these guys, and he started realizing that there were two kinds of creatives in the world. There were what called the conceptual creatives, and they were called the experimental creatives. The conceptual people came on, hit, kind of hit gold early on. Raphael was one of those, a painter that in his 20s, he came up with a new way to do art, and he made his masterpiece, and then he kind of tapered off at the end, later years in his life. But he said most of the great, what they call 
the, uh, the old masters, if you look at their work and you do scans of their work, like the Mona Lisa, you'll see with the Mona Lisa, they say if you do scans of their work with x-rays, you'll see that the final product was actually the result of many, many, many failed attempts. And there's another Mona Lisa under the Mona Lisa that Leonardo painted it, and he's like, not quite right. And then he put a little bit more work into the smile over here. Then he put a little bit of work into the forehead. And you watch, and there's layers upon layers upon layers of work that created the masterpiece that we look at today and value as those old masters. And they were experimental creators. And I think that's a good picture of what God is doing with your life. Every time you come back around a circle, he's putting a new touch on the painting. And he's making it into something beautiful. And he's not going to stop until he completes his work. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So my final encouragement for you guys this evening is, man, keep your chin up. Keep your eyes focused on him, recognizing that he really is working all things together for good. And my goal with this book is to help you if you're in the middle of the battle. Maybe look at this roadmap and say, yeah, here's some things I, okay, what I'm going through, this is part of the journey. Like, God hasn't forgotten me. I didn't make a mistake. This is just part of the process of God making me into all he wants me to be. And I would encourage you also to begin to look backwards because what God's calling you to do next, you're already ready for it. You're already prepared for it. He's been building it into you. And you may go, I don't think I can do it. Trust me. He's not going to ask you to do anything he hasn't prepared you for already. And it'll stretch you. Every time he'll stretch you. Remember, because that love is pushing you outward. That love that's in your heart from him, is, it says it's compelling us outward. Know this, though. To the very day you die, God is going to be completing his work. I'll never forget my grandpa on his deathbed his whole life. He, was, he, he had polio. He was crippled his whole life. He was always worried about his security and safety. And he got bedridden. Worst, worst nightmare of his for the last six months of his life. And I remember a few days before he died, he said, Joel, God has taught me more about who he is in the last six months in this bed than I think he's taught me my entire life. And then he said, I think I'm ready to go meet him. And I was like, wow. Right until the very end, man, God is going to keep working on you, even if you're stuck in bed. But he's going to do it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You can be confident that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It's just going to keep shining brighter and brighter and brighter to the fullness of day. So we rejoice in our suffering, for we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, which is beyond our, all comparison. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And we can be confident. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has perceived what God has in store for those who put their trust in him. And that's my prayer for you guys. You'll see he is working all things together for good. Everything that's happening right now is part of his plan for your life. You guys receive that? All right, let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much that you are all powerful. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can stop your plan. We, we cannot we cannot stop your plan. You will accomplish your purposes on this earth. And we thank you that we get to be part of it. We thank you that you love us, that you have a plan for our lives. And I pray for anyone here this morning or this evening that's been, and they've been going like, Lord, did you forget me? Or 
Maybe they've been going, what am, I, what am I supposed to do next? Lord, I pray that you would just begin to show them, maybe just through this little simple process, that you've been working, preparing them for their greatest days ahead, and you, have not, you, you haven't forgotten them, and their best days are ahead. So I thank you for that. In your name, amen. Thanks so much, y'all.